So I'm Errol Southers. I'm the professor of the practice of national and homeland security at the University of Southern California Saul Price School of Public Policy and director of the Safe Communities Institute, as well as director of homegrown violent extremism studies there. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University, these conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. So I'm really excited to speak with you. I've been tweeting at you, DMing here and there for many years. And this is the first time I've had an opportunity to actually speak with you. So really appreciate you making the time. One of the themes of this podcast is to understand how folks get into this line of work. And so I've talked to academics and journalists and lawyers and a whole bunch of folks. I don't think I've talked to someone with your background in law enforcement in particular yet. Could you talk a little bit about moving from the FBI, other law enforcement agencies, into being an author and a professor and an expert in these issues? How did that happen? Well, first, Oren, thank you for having me today. Again, it's a mutual admiration society here. I've been a big fan, and I want to definitely compliment and thank the ADL for their incredible work on extremism. We use a lot of your data, and uh, we have a saying at my center that goes, without data, you're just somebody with an opinion, so thank you very much. So like many, you know, I grew up in the 60s going through the riots in, in New Jersey and across the country and being stopped in the street by law enforcement. I was not a big fan of law enforcement growing up, although I never did anything wrong. Small town, New Jersey kid, Eagle Scout, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was having a conversation with my dad one day complaining about being stopped for walking down the street. And he said, you know, you can't change the castle from outside the moat. And so that really resonated with me. You know, he said, if you want to be the change, you should be the change that you're looking for. I moved to California after college and became a police officer in Santa Monica, which of course had its challenges. There were a limited number of female and officers of color there. And I left Santa Monica PD to go to the FBI, where I worked foreign counterintelligence and terrorism. And this was in the 80s when I was in San Diego Division, and we were still investigating Tom Metzger and Fallbrook. Uh, in fact, one of my squad mates had an open case on him. And that's where I got more interested. Although we were working terrorism from an international perspective largely at that time, I was really interested in what was going on in the United States and understanding too at that time, we were, and you know better than I do, there were more cross burnings in California than there were in the South. And many people were not aware of that. I moved through several other law enforcement agencies. I returned to Santa Monica PD. I served in the governor's office of Homeland Security just after 9-11 and stood up the critical infrastructure protection unit there. And again, we were looking at that international threat, but we were getting streams of information about the domestic threat, particularly as it targeted critical infrastructure in the United States, and most particularly as it targeted electronic grids and power plants and things like that. So after that, I moved on and became a graduate student at USC, and I started working on what was going to be a dissertation on terrorist networks. And it morphed itself into looking at violent extremism. I just became fascinated with the homegrown threat that it seemed to be growing, but no one was paying attention to because we had this whole focus on Islamists and Al-Qaeda and all those other organizations like that. And so I stayed in that stream. As I was writing my dissertation, I was approached by a publisher and decided to publish part of my dissertation into a book. And I guess there's a reason for everything. When that published, it was the week before 
the Boston Marathon attack and moved on to become the director of a center at USC, a safe communities institute, where our focus is on violence prevention and public safety. So it's been an interesting pathway. What's interesting about that too, Lauren, is that like you, I get to travel all over the world. And when I'm going to places, particularly in Europe, and like you, I, I teach in Israel and I've been there for 15 years, we're talking about a homegrown threat. We're not talking about people who have traveled abroad, immigrated, become refugees in a new country and decided to attack. And, and that's what I tried to emphasize with the Sonayev brothers with Boston. They had lived in the United States for 10 years. Right. And when they got radicalized, quote unquote, if you will, they were Americans. Mm -hmm. So it's been an interesting pathway. So you mentioned that after some time in law enforcement, what prompted you to say, I want to go back to school and study this a little bit more deeply? I'm glad you asked that question. An incredible mentor in Washington, D.C. named Jim Davis. First of all, he's a retired colonel from the Army. Mm -hmm. He was also the first director of the Holocaust Museum mm -hmm. and a very, very dear friend of mine. And he had some tough love for his mentee here. He asked me one day, he says, when are you going to get your master's degree? And I said, well, oh God, I'm, I, don't, I wasn't thinking about that. He says, well, if you're going to be an adjunct professor someday, you're going to need a degree. And I whined and said, that's going to take three years. He said, well, it's really simple, Errol. In three years, you'll either be finished or we'll still be talking about it. <laughs> and so then after I got my master's, sometime after that, he gave me some time to exhale. And he said, so when are you getting your doctorate? I said, come on, Jim. He says, well, let me ask you a question. What do your colleagues on the faculty have as their degree? I said, doctoral degrees. He said, well, then there, there's the answer right there. And so I moved into the doctoral program. And so here I am. It pays to have some mentors who offer some tough love. Do you feel like your experience first with law enforcement has informed the way you understand the broader threats? I definitely think it does. And I'll tell you more so than that, not just understanding the threat, but trying to speak to an audience that's addressing the threat, mm. who feels like, and I can tell you this from the, I sit in classes that my center offers where there are the academics, and I can tell by the body language, I can tell by the response, especially from the public safety domain, that their whole attitude is, if you don't do what I do and have never walked in my shoes, don't tell me how to do it. Mm. So my lectures are quite a bit different because they don't get to play that what if game with me. It works very well because I understand law enforcement from the local, state, and federal perspective, and I think it has greatly informed the way I teach. I think it's also helped me in the way that I'm received, especially when I'm trying to educate law enforcement on things that they don't want to hear, much less believe. And when you were initially in law enforcement, was the threat of terrorism or domestic extremism something that you know an average police department was thinking about? And how has that changed because of the realities that we're facing with today, the landscape? That's a great question. It morphed over time. The beginning of my time in law enforcement, it was not the focus of what we were dealing with at all. Of course, when I moved to the airport police in, in Los Angeles, and the LAX is the number one targeted airport in the country, having been, as you know, the target in 2005 of that thwarted plot that was hatched right here in LA, it became the primary focus of law enforcement. We saw agencies like NYPD, LAPD, not only standing up counterterrorism bureaus, but sending their people overseas. I was good friends with NYPD's liaison in Tel Aviv. You know, LAPD had people overseas. We had people in Paris. So we understood that if we were going to address the threat here at home, we had to have some international connectivity. But to answer your question, 
it became a larger threat. Agencies, even like my own, the airport police, we had people who were attached to the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So it became a primary concern for local law enforcement. I'm glad that it did. Mm. I often ask folks for advice that they may give others. We know that there are people who have been in various law enforcement agencies who are now studying this and have become academics. I think that's become sort of a growth industry to some degree. But would there be advice that you would give somebody who maybe has served their community in law enforcement, but wants to find an alternative way, sort of expanding their knowledge and finding other ways to mitigate specifically extremist threats? What are things that you think they should at least consider before sort of making that move? The first thing I would say to them is to be willing to be a student. I mean, I will always be a student, no matter how long I'm a professor. I've gone into communities and basically said to the people there, you are the professor now, you educate me. So that's the one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is you need to approach this from an interdisciplinary standpoint. You can't look at this from a social sciences perspective or a sciences perspective or a policy perspective. You've got to consider all of those domains, all of those disciplines, if you're really going to be effective. And then last but not least, I will say, don't ever stop reading. I'm like you. I read every single day. I try to read as much as I can. It's a very close-knit community, although there are quite a few of us in it now, and I'm learning every day. So I would just say be open to that. It is a growth industry. I jokingly always say to everyone, anybody who has cable news now is a terrorism expert, and anybody who has Google (laughs) is an epidemiologist on COVID. So having said that, you just have to be willing to understand that we don't know everything. And I want to say that I'm smart enough to tell people when I don't know. I don't. And I think it's all about being a student for the rest of your life if you're going to be effective in this domain. Can you talk a little bit about the law enforcement work inquiry system registry? I understand it's the first national catalog of police officers who have been terminated or resigned due to misconduct. I also understand it's named after John Lewis, rest in peace, intentionally there. But what essentially is it? What is it designed to do? Well, thank you for the opportunity to share the information. We did name it after John Lewis. It is a national database, as you mentioned, that is documenting officers who are terminated or resigned due to misconduct. I started working on this with a colleague, Dr. Mayaguez Salinas, who's a cybersecurity expert. And we wanted to say, what can we really do that we can get people from abolitionists to law enforcement to agree that reform is possible? And so we all agreed, officers who are fired, And I have to tell you, as an assistant chief of police, it takes almost an act of Congress to fire an officer. Hmm. Those people need to do something else. They don't need to return to the profession. A study by Yale University about six months ago even proved that officers who are terminated and come back to another agency not only get in trouble, but get in worse trouble. So we have a number of categories as thresholds that will put people into this registry. Use of force, corruption, domestic violence, hate group affiliation, planting or destroying evidence to give you a few And now what we're going to do, we're going to offer the information we have. We have 319 entries at this point of people that have been fired, and it'll be free and available to anybody in the country. So what happens now? This means that every citizen in the country can look at their state, can look at the people that are working perhaps in their neighborhood and determine whether or not the screening process was appropriate. Do we have officers that have been fired? Here's where it really becomes important for legislators. The embarrassing thing about this is that the current literature on this is about 28 years old. This is another study I'd like to do. If you look at payouts for misconduct for agencies, 28 years ago, the average payout on police misconduct lawsuit was Mm $650,000. So if you're a taxpaying citizen, that should get your attention. 
So we are now talking about being able to make sure that these kinds of officers don't get in law enforcement again. So here's how this all works. We're gonna be having a public database that will be available to everybody. We are working on a password protected encrypted side for law enforcement only, where they will give us additional data in an anonymized way, age, time on the job, special details, what shift they work. So we can collect data to determine are there predictive indicators for problems. When I was at Santa Monica PD, there was a term limit on gangs. There was a term limit on working narcotics. I would suggest that that probably mitigated officers who working in those details for too long get too comfortable and start to do things they're not supposed to. So we think we'll be able to influence policy. We have a bridges program and here's how we're gonna give back. Our bridges program is going to educate people who may be detained by the police, pedestrians and motorists, and it's going to educate police officers who encounter people that they stop. It's not going to be a list of don't do this. It's going to be a list of things for people in the public to say, here are the things you do when the police come up and talk to you. We're going to say to the officers, here are the things you do. This is not about officer safety. This is about respect. The plan is to eventually have this program go out. People get certificates from completing it. We will have bumper stickers, license plate frames for the people who complete the program. We will have lapel pins for the officers who complete the program. And now as an officer, I walk up to your car, I see your Lewis license plate frame, you see my lapel pin, we have something in common. You may still get a ticket, you may just get a warning, but the bottom line is the bridge is that we wanna make sure we have a conversation that is based in mutual respect. We wanna be a bridge. We do not wanna be seen as a database that's collecting information only on terminated police officers. We want to be a bridge that people always say they want between a community and the law enforcement agencies that are protecting and serving them. I'm struck by one of the categories that you mentioned is in the registry, which is hate group affiliation. I imagine that there's some challenges there in the sense that we issued a report earlier this year that looked at public reporting of law enforcement officers who showed up at extremist events or otherwise indicated it. But what was clear in our research was that there was very little transparency, that the numbers that we had, we knew was only the tip of the iceberg. Do you think that, A, people know what the shared vernacular is in terms of hate group to even necessarily know what to put in there? And how do you educate folks who will use this about how to identify hate groups in that particular category of the database? Allow me to, to rain some sunshine onto the ADL because we're using your report to educate these law enforcement agencies regarding those groups that they should be looking for in their screening process for new officers. I'm really proud to say that we're kicking off a new course tomorrow called Extremism in Law Enforcement. And we're going to start with what you just talked about, how to identify these groups, who are they, where do they reside, and how can they be included in your list of disqualifiers for your screening process for new officers that apply to the department. I imagine there might be some pushback here. Are you feeling any of that? Not that it necessarily would change course. Let me just give you what we're getting so far. And again, like you, it's all about data. So the first thing we did when we started this initiative we did a poll across all three political parties asking, would you support a national registry of officers who are fired for misconduct? 80% said they would support it. 74% Republican, 76% Independent, and 90% Democrats. 
This past year, we did a survey of 365 law enforcement executives, mostly municipal department chiefs. We asked them, would you support a registry of this type? 74% said yes. Then we asked the second question, whether you support it or not, would you use this registry as part of your screening process? 95% said they would. So we're okay in that respect with regards to suggesting that we have the support we need to do this. The second piece to that is we actually tagged on the hate group affiliation after talking to Rochelle Brackney, who was chief in Charlottesville, Virginia. She made that a disqualifier. She had an officer or applicant sue her and she won. So we felt like this is perhaps another threshold we should add for the Lewis registry. And we did. And we'll see how it goes. It's interesting because I can imagine there's going to be a challenge just in general, even outside of a registry like this to define extremism moving forward, right? The landscape has changed. We don't have designated terrorist organizations the way we do with foreign entities. The narratives that animate extremists to action now, it's not always easy to pinpoint them as being specific to an extremist movement. They're actually much more mainstreamed and sort of accepted by a wider audience. And yet those are indications that somebody may be going down a path of radicalization, whether it's believing conspiracy theories or disinformation. How do you view the challenge of defining what is extremist beyond the pale, defining what we know motivates some extremists to even violent activity, knowing that there's larger groups of people, larger population that seems to subscribe to some of the same narratives that we know have animated people to action. I always have to remind my students that being an extremist in the United States is protected constitutionally. Hate speech, as you know, is protected constitutionally. Once they decide to act or threaten violence, they've crossed over the line. And so I always use that as my defining moment. I have a slide when I do do presentations on this and I have an African-American police officer who is working security for a Klan rally. I said, unfortunately, that is what America is. Mm. They have a right to be there. He's an officer. His duty is to protect and serve. They have a permit to rally. He's there. So I always use that dividing line of violence. And while I don't agree like you with many of the ideologies out there, I don't agree with the things that they say and do. I sometimes do wish we had some of the laws they have, say, in the UK and other places where hate speech is actually banned. Knowing that we have that here, we have to unfortunately deal with crossing over that threshold of violence, which makes them fit into the world that we will then be able to address them. And so I I always offer that up and say, you know, as you know, there are factions out there. There are three percenters who say we accept everybody and there are three percenters who don't and skinheads who do and skinheads who don't. And that's the world that we live in. And I have to remind people that it's not one umbrella when you talk about groups and extremism there are violent segments under that umbrella and there are others who are not. And so we just have to kind of navigate that really thorny path of distinguishing the two when we have to address them. Yeah. You know, Errol, it has been a pretty intense couple of years, five, 10 years even. How do you make space to deal with the issues that you're dealing with, leading the center as you do, being on top of these issues, but not letting yourself become completely hopeless and jaded from all of it? You know, I have to tell you something that COVID has been an interesting defining moment for people, especially for me. And I've been an athlete most of my life and and work out every day, but I never focus on- Oh, you work out every day. See, I don't know. I think we have to cut that. Just (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just because I don't. Um, 
I've, I've never focused so much on self-care or understood the importance of self-care until stay-at-home came around. And I think it's really helped me deal with what's happening domestically and internationally in my world, but it's mm. helped me personally. And I think it's helped me keep some balance. I know how to step away from things. I've always compartmentalized pretty well, but like you said, over the last five to 10 years, I've had to compartmentalize in a way that, okay, I'm going to deal with this right now, but then this afternoon, I'm going to watch college football and I'm not going to care about anything that happens. And so I've gotten to be pretty good at that. And I know how to step away from conversations too. With all due respect, I don't want to talk to people about where they stand on COVID. I don't want to talk to people about where they stand on certain members of Congress. I just don't want to have those conversations sometimes. And I stay away from politics and religion as much as I can and try to deal with the other things that are in my space. And I think it served me well. That's fantastic. Finding a way to stay away from politics and religion in the extremism space, I think, is a particular talent, by the way. <laughs> I think that's a difficult thing to do. Are there any strategies you give students or others who are getting into this field about how to maintain a healthy work-life balance, how to protect themselves from what at times can be very intense? The most important thing for me is to understand that you have to worry about what you can control. I run into too many people today that, oh my God, I'm worried about this happening. And, and, and what if they do that? And, and I say, look, you need to be concerned with what you can control. Understand that greater space that you're talking about, but you can't lose sleep. You can't have anxiety. You can't have to go to therapy because of something that you can't control. And so that to me is the most important piece of advice. I'm not saying don't care. There's a difference between not caring and not worrying about it. And that's what served me well. I see things like you do on TV every single day that are really upsetting, but there's little I can do. Now, in the space where I can do something, that's where I'm not going to give up. I'm extremely passionate about what I do. In fact, my biggest character flaw is I don't know how to say no. Can I have a million dollars? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but I think it's really important to understand what's in your bandwidth as a person. Yeah. And most importantly, it's all about relationships and don't give up on people. Understand that the really nefarious things that we see on television is a fringe. It is a slice of life. It is not life itself. It's not news, unfortunately, sometimes, if it's not bad news. And I have to remind people of that. So that's something I tell my students. They say, you know, you're not going to hear about the young man who was a Boy Scout who goes on to become a community leader because that's not exciting for people, unfortunately. You're going to hear about the young man who goes and does the drive-by shooting. I said, you can't focus on that. Yeah. So understand and have some balance. Really important perspective. Has this work taught you anything about yourself that you wouldn't have necessarily learned had you not been doing this sort of work? This work has taught me how important one person can be. That mentor I spoke about earlier in our conversation, mm -hmm. he told me something very valuable. He said, you've always got to have a three to five year plan. And I want you to write down five things you want to do in your life. And I wrote down, meet the president, meet the governor, become the head of a large department. And what's really interesting is that those things have happened. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. I had two parents who prioritized education. Mm. And I'm really, really glad that they did. So the one thing I will say that this has taught me is that anything's possible. You can make a difference. And nothing makes me more proud and more energized. And when I hear from former students that are now in the FBI, in FEMA, teaching, researching, who say they love what they're doing, 
and they really enjoyed meeting me along the way as a professor. So that's incredibly humbling and it's satisfying and I really enjoy it. That's really nice to hear. For people who want to be part of a solution, who want to be part of the effort to push back against extremism and hate, but don't necessarily have a platform, what are things that they can do practically in their lives that will have an impact, but doesn't require a master's degree or a history of going through FBI or academia? I always tell people, because you can't do everything doesn't mean you should do nothing. Start to educate yourself. Start to make yourself more aware of what is happening. The really discouraging thing for me are meeting with organizations and groups of people and telling them things that you and I know well, and they say, I had no idea that was going on. And then I encourage them, whether it's through their faith-based group or their community group or a circle of friends, start to talk about this, start to get together and educate yourselves and decide what you're going to do. If you're going to work to reduce the risk of homelessness, sign up. One of the things about America that got lost over the last five or so years is the fact that the volunteerism in America is unprecedented amongst other countries in the world. More people volunteer in this country than any place else. And it's not because we have more people. In 2009, there was a study on it and volunteerism was off the charts regarding community infused and community directed efforts. And I think we need to re-engage that. I always tell people, volunteer, give two hours a week. You spend two hours a week thinking about what you're going to do. And so I think that's important to just getting involved in something and yeah. make that your passion and just do it. You mentioned you're involved in team sports. And I'm just curious if that experience has informed your ability later in life to be a leader of teams and to work well with others as a huge sports fan myself, and, and for all those who don't know, I did play basketball in high school. But I mean, how, how has that informed like the importance of team sports in creating cultures and environments where people can work together? I'm always fascinated by that. I'm smiling because I was too short to play basketball. So during basketball season in New Jersey, I wrestled and I grew up in a wrestling town where kids start wrestling at age five. It taught me a lot of things. It taught me how to lose and not give up. Mm. It taught me discipline. I'm often surprised when I see the number of quote unquote, I'll just say leaders, males that were wrestlers. There's a discipline that comes out of that sport that with all due respect to other sports is really off the charts. And that really informed my way of how to get along with others. Although it's an individual effort, it's a team sport. And it was really important in my life growing up. I never gave up. I learned that there was a goal at the end of the rainbow. But it really taught me how to socialize and get along with teammates and care about them. And I find that people that are in team sports like yourself, there's something about athletics that teaches that. And I think it's really crucial. You know, you can be a great student, but it's, that's not a group activity. Athletics, to me, you can be an outstanding individual athlete, but if you're part of a team, it makes it real different. So I, it played a big, big part in my growing up. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? online or elsewhere. Thank you. The Safe Communities Institute is sci.usc.edu. Please go there. We have a number of programs that we offer. We have a lot of events that come up during the year. We've got an event coming up in the next two weeks with a guy named Doug Laux, who's a former CIA agent who actually was undercover, believe it or not, in the Taliban, who grew up in Ohio and learned to speak fluent Pashto. So we have events, but go to sci.usc.edu. There's 
a way to learn about Lewis Registry and, and sign on if you want to support us there. And we're engaged in a real broad spectrum of activities, including research, which we can talk about another day. We're working in the virtual reality space on changing the design of buildings in the event that there's an active shooter to make people safer and more secure based on design. And we're using VR to do it. So we're doing a lot of interesting work. So go to sci.usc.edu and find out more about us. I just want to, again, thank you so much for sharing information about the center, the work that you're doing, the Lewis Registry, and also a little bit about yourself and how you got into this space. I've obviously learned a lot. I think the listeners will appreciate hearing how there's so many different paths into this line of work. And I actually think the more diverse pathways we get into this, the different backgrounds, the different jobs that people have held before they enter this, the better this field will be ultimately in tackling this issue. So thank you again for making the time and really appreciate it. Well, Oren, thank you for all you do. And thank you to the ADL because you really do inform a lot of my work and I appreciate your support. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The Center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and education that enables law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.